Thanks for tuning in to Our Digital Nation. Today, I'm bringing on Bill Eggers, Executive Director of Deloitte Center for Government Insights. He'll be sharing perspective from his work with the public sector through the lens of his most recent book. Stay tuned. Our Digital Nation is brought to you by the FedRAMP approved Salesforce Government Cloud. Give leadership, management, and employees the mobile self-service analytical tools they need to connect data, process, and people. Create a digital platform that puts the customer at the heart of the mission. I'm excited to welcome Bill Eggers to today's show. Bill is a leading authority on public-private partnerships and government reform. He's also responsible for research and thought leadership at Deloitte's public sector industry practice. And if that's not enough, he's also the author of nine books, his most recent of which, Delivering on Digital, the Innovators and Technologies that are Transforming Government, is really more of a playbook. It walks through the strategies and next steps that public sector leaders should consider when they find themselves asking questions like, how do we transform the mission to be more citizen-centric? How do we transform our organization to become more modern, more digital, and more relevant to today's world? I got a chance to sit down with Bill and pick his brain on some of these questions, some of his experience, of course, the background on his book, and what he sees in terms of the future for government as an industry. Hi, and welcome to the program, Bill. Claire, thanks so much for having me on today. So we want to discuss your book, Delivering on Digital, the Innovators and Technologies that are Transforming Government. In this book, you talk a lot about how departments and agencies can hack that transformation process and do a little bit better than the status quo. Can you kick us off here by sharing a little more color around that concept and you know what it means in terms of opportunities for today's leaders? Hack is always such a scary word a lot of times in tech. Well, for a lot of people, hacking, of course, is used pejoratively in terms of cyber hacking and cyber attacks. But in fact, for a lot of technologists, hacking is really all about how they go about their daily business in terms of it means fixing problems. It means looking at things that need to be reformed, that need to be improved and going about it in an iterative fashion. And currently, when you look at most of the processes of the government today, whether it's the HR systems, procurement, how they do delivery, policy design, most of those systems are incompatible with the digital age and they need to be modernized. So we talk about hacking because you don't need to do it all at once. You want to constantly be making smaller improvements, but understanding what that destination is, which is a truly digital age government. Okay, great. Now, comparing this to Gov 2.0, that was a book that you wrote back in 2004 that looked at a lot of the excitement generated by the dot-com era across the public sector. You know, it's been 13 years, (laughs) and we're still talking about that idea of potential versus action and examples. Can you maybe fill us in a little bit on why you think that is? We are. It's actually, clear a lot of the reason why I wrote this book, because, you know, Gov 2.0 is all about how technologies can transform government and make you know, our country and the world, a much better place. And in many respects, we had some gains, but in other respects, a lot of that didn't happen. And some people might talk about eGov deja vu. They remember the eGov era during the dot-com era and say, why, why haven't we reached this point today? And will it be different at this time? Well, there's a number of reasons why we didn't fully achieve a digitized government during the last era of e-government. You know, for one, if you think back to that time, Most individuals and businesses didn't really know what a great digital experience was. 
it was still fairly new in that regard. Number two, the technologies weren't quite there. We didn't have software as a service or cloud computing. There was no iPhone around in many respects. Number three, if you think about the millions of people who now work in technology and doing digital and user experience, user design, service architects, and all of those different service specialties, they didn't really exist at that time either. And what governments ended up doing was putting in a Hollywood storefront. They focused on <laughs> basically just the front end, trying to get that front end right, but didn't bother with a lot of the back end systems. And then 9-11 happened. And people, you know, mostly put a lot of the digital transformation on hold for quite a long time. But now we're back at it today. I'm very optimistic that we will reach it this time. The technology costs are much lower. People's experience is much better. And citizens are just demanding it because they're used to interacting with the best digital services every day, whether it's through their mobile phone, their laptop computer, or increasingly through Internet of Things and other sort of tools like that. So opportunity, I think, is maybe a good word to summarize that. New opportunities that maybe weren't there in the past or that now we're better poised to take advantage of? It's not only opportunities, but really necessities. I mean, okay. the digital transformation is the most important thing, I think, happening for almost every private sector company and enterprise and organization today. And governments really have no choice but to join that revolution, or else what we'll see is the gap between what citizens are expecting and what government can actually contribute, getting wider and wider and wider. So really, it's both an opportunity, but it is an absolute necessity today. There's a lot of government transactions now and services that can be 100% digitized. Absolutely 100% where you never have to fill out any forms on paper again. And those are some of the really great opportunities to start with. Let's take a look at that Hollywood storefront analogy in literal terms. Last year, the Government Accountability Office found that over 75% of IT budget was allocated to legacy system maintenance. That's up 2% from the previous year's report. And it's near impossible to deliver new, innovative services when 75% of your budget is allocated towards keeping dated infrastructure kind of limping along. Acknowledging the need for a more innovative house without investing in the foundation that's capable of building it out and bringing it to life is what creates this facade that Bill describes. Now, I know that some might claim that lean budgets and highly regulated environment, certainly things that are typical of your department or agency, are oftentimes major deterrents to innovation. And while yes, those can certainly be inhibitors, there are so many other characteristics that topple these kinds of barriers. Things like the size and the scope and well-established mission of many departments and agencies today. And these are things that give government the power to really set the tone. Bill captures this well in a passage from his book that reads, From education to defense and security, government is either a dominant or the dominant buyer in many markets. The public sector can use its buying power to shape and create public sector markets in a way that deliberately foster lower cost innovations. A lot of people will say that the kind of disruptive innovation and the digital disruption that we're seeing in the private sector can never happen to government. But paradoxically, I actually believe it can because government does control a lot of those markets with its huge buying power. It is buying more services around things like transportation, education, healthcare, and many other areas than any other buyer. 
And just like Walmart is a big buyer and they were able to basically have an impact on what the market is, both the prices, government can do the same. And by doing so, what it can do is encourage more low cost, more digital, and I would say more innovative sort of services. So let's take one example, transportation. Okay. Transportation has always been about infrastructure and building bridges and building roads. And that's what transportation departments do. That's what engineers know how to do. Yet increasingly, transportation in a digital world is about the shared economy and it's about mobility on demand. Yeah. How we need to get from one place to another. Now, transportation departments can start thinking about what is the most efficient way of them getting people from one place to another? Can they team up with the Lyfts and Ubers of the world as they're doing in some cities and actually having them provide services for the disabled? Can they build apps where you're able to, in one app, be able to choose between public transportation and subways and buses, shared economy and everything, and be able to have the cheapest, most effective alternative for getting there? So transportation changes to more of a mobility as a service sort of approach in the digital age, as opposed to just providing physical digital infrastructure. One city is already doing that. Helsinki has a goal that by 2025, they want to make it so no citizen would actually have to own a car by then. Hmm. They could still get around no matter if they have six kids <laughs> and everything else, or if they have got to go to the soccer game with the whole team full, that there would be different transportation options they can get. And they've created an app around it called WIM. And it's well designed from a user perspective. And it's a seamless integration of all the payment models from all of that. So that's an example of government actually going in there and saying that we have the power to kind of shape this marketplace and to pivot from a physical world, which is all about just infrastructure, to a digital world, which is more about mobility. There's three big revolutions occurring in business today. It's, it's the design revolution, the data revolution, and the digital revolution. And the magic happens at that intersection of those three. And we call it thinking in 3D. <laughs> and if governments could think more in 3D and apply that sort of multidisciplinary thinking to all kinds of services that it provides and programs, I think you could see better results at lower costs. I want to pause the interview here for just a second, because this thinking in 3D concept the idea of design, data, and digital dimensions is an especially important one to highlight. Design speaks to the user experience. Think about the interface of a good application and how prevalent those are as our world becomes increasingly mobile. On the data front, artificial intelligence and predictive analytics are shaping up to be the backbone of the next big technological wave, really. And both of them rely on the kind of statistical significance that only comes from having large data sets. So that begs the question, where is all this data coming from? Well, that takes you then to the digital dimension. As more processes go digital, think about things like online healthcare services or grant paperwork or uh, student loan applications. They produce more data and more detail about each and every phase of a given service. Now, many private sector companies have turned the combination of these three dimensions into financial success, and that makes them more and more popular in every major industry. In the rest of our interview here, Bill will elaborate on how to turn these dimensions into mission success, explaining how public sector can apply the best practices that have been set by various trailblazers in each of these major industries and explore the dimensions just a bit further. 
I'm I'm kind of a design junkie in a way. I <laughs> absolutely, I'm so fascinated by it because I think you know all of us citizens we're designers every day in what we and how we do things. But if you look at the digital world, good design is is really everything. Designing both the customer interface, the customer experience, and making it seamless across areas. And I think it's one of the areas that we're really just starting to see governments really go into in a bigger way, which is saying, how do we actually bring in more designers into government, people who have experience doing user experience? How do we create these sort of seamless interactions where you can go from one platform to another in a way that's as seamless as when you're buying, you know, things on Amazon? I mean, think about what it would mean to have government transactions as simple as you see whether it's on Amazon or Uber or many of the other apps, which are basically beautifully designed because they have Mm -hmm. simplicity, because they really are focused on the user experience, because they're putting the user ahead of everything else. And they're constantly iterating and adapting literally every day. Now, another thing you can do from a design perspective is start thinking about what's called behavioral science. And that's how our brains work. We're pretty irrational people, believe it or not. And <laughs> so market economists, that's what been discovered by behavioral economists. And if we understand that human behavior, because a lot of what government's trying to do is change human behavior sometimes. And so what New Mexico did was they wanted to say, how do we reduce unemployment benefit fraud or essentially improper payments from unemployment benefits? Right now, every one in $9 that goes to that is improper. And they said, well, we could do the old way would have just been about kind of punishing and sending out SWAT teams to go after people and so forth. But you know what? You end up with a lot of what's called false positives, which means a lot of people you might go after actually didn't do anything wrong. Your algorithms are just wrong. So instead they said, Let's look at those points during the application process and figure out when people might be willing to not quite tell the truth quite as often, or they might have an error in different things. And what would happen was the pop-up messages would come up. Are you sure you didn't work these days? Or something like that. And by having really good design principles in there with digital, and then by constantly testing this, New Mexico was able to reduce improper payments by 50%. No technology is going to play a more important role in all of our lives over the next 10 years than cognitive technologies or AI. None. I mean, whether between autonomous vehicles, between facial recognition, between the kind of huge, deep insights we're going to be getting from machine learning. This will impact all of our lives in so many ways. I mean, artificial intelligence smartness will be embedded in just about everything. And for some people, that's really, really exciting and wonderful. <laughs> and for other people, it's really scary because sure. they get a potential loss of 40% of all the jobs that are occurring. And so for government, it's absolutely critical. I and mean, government's going to be both a regulator of AI. It's going to be a user of AI. It's going to be spending a lot of money, especially in defense and intelligence and research and development of this technology. But the big reason why we're hearing so much about it today is for decades, we were in what was called kind of more the AI winter. And what that meant was that for decades, we've been predicting all of these things would happen with AI. And you know what? A lot of the increases were fairly small and incremental, so we barely even saw them, you know. Netflix recommendation engines or Amazon recommendation as a form of AI. 
Um, but that didn't seem like anything revolutionary, like some of the things we're seeing. But now we're in the AI sprint. And what that means is these technologies from facial recognition to machine translation, which is being able to translate foreign languages into different languages, to deep learning and the kinds of you know computer programs we're seeing, which are beating the world's best Go players or Jeopardy <laughs> players. We're in the AI spring, meaning that the performance enhancements are increasing at an exponential rate. And so we're seeing these sort of breakthroughs occur every day. And it's then that's why you're hearing so much about it. And very few people expect those to slow down anytime over the next decade. The biggest gap today between the best commercial enterprises and public sector is not actually in technology. Hmm. It's actually in how work gets done and how work is organized okay. and how work is done. And that's by using technology. So let me explain a little bit more. We did the biggest ever analysis of looking at the federal government and one state government, looking at the potential impact of automation and AI on government. And what we found was that federal government spends about 4.3 billion hours people spend doing various activities, 4.3 <laughs> billion hours. But the biggest single numbers of those activities were things like documenting, recording information, essentially paperwork. And we determined that over the next five years, government could probably reduce 25% of those labor hours and free them up to dedicate towards more productive, more impactful activities. Mission critical type work. Mission critical. Think about that. If you had a whole extra day out of the work week to do other things, and that's what we're talking about, 25% of 1.1 billion work hours. But now to do all that well is going to take a massive amount of work redesign. Right. Because mm -hmm. you need to then be hiring different people and reconfiguring how people are done. And that, I think, is going to be the big challenge in government over the next five to seven years. Because if you're looking at the private sector now and people who are looking at the future of work are actually talking about doubling productivity potentially in the next five years, we're essentially applying Moore's law to work and how it's organized now. That would be an astounding thing if that's actually possible. But that's yeah. between kind of using AI and automation and rethinking about team performance and things like that. So it's going to take a lot of organizational change to get there and actually a lot of vision. You know, think about all the federal agencies all around us here. It's about reimagining how they actually go about achieving their mission using all sorts of digital technology using drones and using robotics and using digital and so forth. And that's going to require a little bit of time and a lot of imagination. We've been talking a lot about that gap as well within the walls of Salesforce. Yeah. It's a term that we've kind of started calling the digital dilemma, which I think is probably going to be a very familiar concept to you, given your work. Can you talk to me a little bit about what is this phenomenon, this gap, and what experience are government turn technology leaders in a lot of these examples you've been giving? What experience have they had with this phenomenon? And what are the ways that maybe drawing on those examples that folks can recognize its impact in their own missions? Sure. I mean, I think for a number of decades, there's been a gap between kind of the private sector and public sector in terms of technology adoption. That's not problematic as long as the gap doesn't get too big, because 
you know, you want the private sector to try out lots of things because, you know, you're spending taxpayer money in this respect. Sure. Um, but what gets dangerous is if the gap gets much, much too big. You know, we still have in the public sector a lot of systems being run on kind of green screens, right? These old legacy 30, even 40 year old sort of systems right now. And those cost a lot of money to maintain. So the federal government, 80% of all the budget goes to operation and maintenance. And a lot of those are these old systems. You've also got a problems in terms of finding people who can actually know how to kind of use them anymore, right? Because a lot of those people are retiring. <laughs> old and, coding languages yeah, old and whatnot. Coding languages, and you also sure. have to worry about hacking of them. So it's about moving out of those sort of a, those systems. And it's very difficult. I mean, we tried in the federal government, they tried a lot of what was called rip and replace, which was just fully moving into new sort of custom systems like that. And a lot of those big, huge technology projects failed. So I think now it's looking at new ways of doing this. But I mean, government is going to have to keep on adapting very quickly because a lot of these technologies are getting better at an exponential rate. We went from you know, processing power, storage power, and all of that exponential sort of increases. And now we're starting to see the same thing with artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, and other emerging digital technologies. I wrote another book a number of years ago called If We Can Put a Man on the Moon, Getting Big Things Done in Government. And it looked at over 100 large government initiatives since World War II. Okay, the biggest, most comprehensive look at how government gets things done. We had 70 graduate students on it, <laughs> 70. It was amazing. And what I can tell you is that doing digital well is different than all those. It's just different. It's a different process. You could be the best program management officer and just terribly at digital because digital requires different set of skills. And so one of them, when you think about the design, is you want to start from a place of ignorance, Hmm. Think about that. Now think about government. That's like blasphemy, right? Yeah. It's yeah. a place of ignorance because we have all the answers and this and that. But what we know about good digital design is that you don't know what the user wants until you start testing it out with the actual user. And okay. that's why starting from a place of ignorance gives you empathy to actually understand and really to go in there and do the ethnographic research and the design thinking to really try to understand what the user really needs, what you're doing is walking in their shoes. And if you can't walk in their shoes and know how to do that and continually be iterating, you're going to provide a poor digital experience. So that's the key thing. That's where the design comes in. That's where the spending a lot of time doing journey mapping and prototyping and understanding the user. Okay. Innovation to me is about breaking trade-offs. Okay. And that means trade-offs between, say, price and performance or, say, security and convenience. You know, actually, I think one of the biggest government innovations of the last few years has been global entry and TSA pre. Because what that did was that broke that trade-off. It said before, you know, it's very convenient going through airports before 9-11, but then after it became very inconvenient because we had to make them more secure. Sure. And what this did was use predictive analytics to say, you know what, give us a lot of this information and we're actually going to make it so it's more secure, but also more convenient. And so innovations about trying to say it's not this or that, but you can have both. And, you know, I, cloud computing software as a service is a great other example of breaking a trade off. Yeah. Right. 
because it's both cheaper and at the same time, you're not having to update the technology yourself all the time. Sure. And you're not having to think about, you're not having to worry about these older legacy systems that, that and operating. So those are great examples of innovation. You're trying to figure out how do we break these perennial trade-offs? And a lot of these technologies enable us to do so. Thank you for tuning into Our Digital Nation. To learn more about the trends and technology behind the discussion, visit us at salesforce.com forward slash industries forward slash government or follow us on Twitter at Salesforce GOV.